So as we wait for everyone to come in and settle down, use these minutes to bring your attention just to this moment. especially because we've been out and moving around and eating and the energy gets a little bit excited, which is great because sleepiness goes away. And also probably a certain amount of steadiness. So let's just use a few minutes now to bring the attention as steadily as we can to a one-pointed focus. What we'll do actually in these next several minutes are several variations of concentration techniques to consolidate concentration. Really a one-pointed focus is nothing but one thing. So perhaps as we sit in these few minutes for just the beginning part, See if you can bring your attention to the breathing exclusively at some part in your body, in your lungs, at your nostrils, in your belly. Several minutes, just this breath, just this breath, just this breath. One pointed attention.
keeping that one-pointed attention. Allow your awareness to feel your whole of your body is probably a little bit excited from being up and moving around and eating. With your whole attention in the whole of your body, feel that liveliness. Maybe if you've just sat down, your heart is still a little bit faster than normal. Maybe your breathing's a little faster than normal. If you keep your attention very steady and you uh, Relax your shoulders at the same time that you smile. You'll feel energy through your whole body. Feel that energy. It's often called rapture. In uh, the meditation lexicon... Actually, the longer you hold that attention on the liveliness in all your body, tingling, shimmering, smiling, it probably amplifies that excitement a little bit. Watch what happens if you add now the element of calm. You can add it again using the breath, taking slightly longer breaths than usual. Take a longer breath in, not exhaustively long, but just a little bit longer than would naturally come in. Hold it for a moment and then let the breath out slower than normal. Each breath in can be a little longer, each breath out a little longer. (laughs) 
And notice how in doing that, your body and your mind calm down a little bit. Introduce the element of calm. As you continue to sit and pay attention, you can let go of the longer breaths, let the breath be quite normal, coming and going as it will. And for a little while, we'll try to pay attention to the subtlest aspects of the changing breath. I'd like you to notice in the next several breaths, just when the breath starts up, we're sitting and a breath begins, and then the in-breath disappears just by itself. Breathing in happens, then it stops, and then breathing out starts. Not right away. There's a little space in between. Breathing out starts, and then that ends. And then there's a little space again before breathing in starts again. There are actually four definite points, beginning and end of the in-breath, beginning and end of the out-breath. I'd like to invite you for the next eight or ten breaths to find the beginning and end of each of them. See if you notice any changes in your alertness as you do that. 
And then as we continue, rather than focus on those discrete points, see if you can stay with breaths in, out, through all the changes, with continuity, seeing one breath disappear, the next breath emerge, that disappears, next breath emerges. Sustaining the attention in continual change. We'll sit for five minutes now. Those five different kinds of breathings were five ways to return the mind to steadiness. So I'll invite you to just sit, being attentive to whatever arises, breath, thoughts, feelings. And if at any point you really want to steady your mind, Pick one of those mind steadiers, bring it to mind, and be with it.
Well, <clears throat> I'm wondering how your uh, lunchtime was, what the experience of eating quietly was like, especially if you've never done that before. I wonder what your experience was with those five different concentration exercises. I wonder how you are. I have a lot of wonders. So, so any of the any of the above, what would you like to say? Yes. I, I felt this the first time we did the walking meditation as well, but I feel like I've been given permission to not worry, which is kind of silly that I had to come all the way here to get it, but it's like a reminder, like an anchor that I don't have to spend my whole life worry, 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 oh, okay, now I'm here, and worry, worry, now I'm here. There's this, all these journeys in between and things to take in. What's your name? Amanda. So Amanda, can I say that to everybody out loud? Because it's a, actually it's a it's a realization close to my heart. Amanda said while she was uh, walking and uh, all throughout the rest of the day, she had the realization. It's an extraordinary realization, you know. I did not have that for a lot of my life that she didn't have to worry. That uh, I, I I am taking that to mean in the biggest sense not only. The instruction is fairly easy, so you don't have to worry about it. But when your mind relaxes, it's hard to work up a worry. It seems very extra at that point. You know, like the mind is too relaxed to worry. Is that, I think, what you meant? I had once the thought, you know, that it was actually like an alarming thought. I might forget to worry. <laughs> How about all my worries that I worry about all the time, that I juggle? Worry number one, worry number two, worry number three. What if I put them down? You know, in, in the days that I thought of myself as um, a chronic worrier. No, no, not worrier, fretter. Not what we said before. Uh, rather than an anxious person. A person in whom fretting arose quite a bit. That fretting is actually extra. Fretting doesn't get anything done. It's debilitating to the mind. I mean, sometimes there are situations that need to be addressed, but they don't need to be fretted about. But that was not actually... I did not think that fretting was optional. In the, I actually didn't know, I didn't know it was an optional. I, I, it's, it's not entirely optional. You have to work on it, uh, not taking over the mind. And some people don't fret. I actually, when I met people who didn't fret, it was like seeing a bird of rare plumage, you know. That, um, but I'm happy to hear about that. Do you know which of those breathing exercises is meant to address the fretting in the mind? What would you guess? The calming. The calming. Take a long breath. The long breaths in and out have the effect of calming the mind. Those five breathings, breathe this way, this way, this way, this way, this way, address five typical afflictive mind states. You know, in Buddhist lexicons, those five afflictive mind states are called hindrances. But hindrances, I realize I've said many times today, this is a wrong word, this is a misnomer. But hindrances is a... Uh, sounds like it's an optional thing or it's like a block that somebody, a stumbling block. It is in a certain way because 
uh, when any of these five, we've only developed one at this point, I've spoken about one, when they arise, we stumble over them because we don't see clearly. But they're called hindrances because they're hindrances to clear seeing. They stir up the mind, and then we can't make a good judgment. In the days of the where I actually was not as alert to the fact that my mind fretted as a habit, I, I remember one day I was on a, on a retreat, and I was... I was, felt quite relaxed, as, as you were pointing out, Amanda. And I thought to myself, you know, I might forget how to worry, accidentally. And I, thought, and I gave myself a test. I said, I brought to mind a potentially worrisome subject. So I happened to be at that point in, a, in a Southern California in a desert at a meditation center. And uh, my younger daughter at that point was an adolescent and... Uh, uh, she had asthma during her adolescent years, and uh, she was in Mexico on a trip with my father. And so I, my potentially worrisome thought, what if Emily forgot her asthma medicine um, and didn't take it to Mexico? And I bring the thought to mind, and nothing much happened. And that was surprising, because it's really a cause for a threat. Uh, a fret, and I thought to myself, that's very interesting. But in that calm mind, I thought, what if she didn't bring the asthma medicine to Mexico? And then I thought, she probably did. And they have pharmacies in Mexico. And she's there with her grandfather, who's an able-bodied person, figure it out. And I can't do anything about it. I'm here in the middle of the Southern California desert. So... It falls away. But what has to happen in order for reason to prevail is that the mind has to be quiet enough. It's not like I've figured it out. It's that wisdom presents itself when the mind is clear. That's why I had us look at the wisdom this morning as the faculty, as the virtue or the capacity of mind, that we all fundamentally can figure things out. Human beings are amazing. I I like to tell you that story like the woman in the plane uh, in, in O'Hare, who had this or that really tremendous challenge in her life, figures out you talk to your neighbors. I think when she said to me, I talked to my neighbors, she figured out that collegiality and connection makes you feel better. And she probably learned when she talked to her neighbors that everybody's got stuff. We have this, they have that, they have this, they have that. So it's really, it's, it's, it's quite normal, the wisdom that we're hoping to have. Things passed. It was Jane Hirschfield, the poet, who recently said, um, this is the whole of Buddhism. Everything changes. Everything is connected. Pay attention. <laughs> That's it. Uh, by, by the way, this morning when I said the three things that you had to know, everything changes. Everything is connected. The third of those is that tension in the mind is, uh, is suffering. Tension in the mind is suffering and precludes seeing clearly. And the end of tension allows clarity and allows wisdom to prevail. It's the truths of impermanence, the truths of interconnectedness, and the truths of, uh, the truth of suffering. So, thank you very much, Amanda. What else happened to people as you walked? Yeah. 
learning this and stopping fretting and I've gained clear thinking since January. I'm so grateful for coming to Spirit Rock and this healing process I've gone through. But I found myself today back with a headache and I can listen to the pounding of my heart in my head. <laughs> um, and the remnant seems to be how in the world can I put these practices and wisdom I've gained into work in the business world? I just, I just don't think that I can reflect and be peaceful. And maybe that's my insight is that I shouldn't go back. But <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I just don't see how I can be this person that we're speaking of in this high-paced, competitive, cutthroat world. I just don't know. What's your name? Melinda. Melinda, you drove me up this morning. Yes. Thank you very much. How many people have that same question? How am I going to take this out of here and live in the world? You know, it's really, it's really, um, it's really a, a, a substantial question. So I want to, I want to think about it slowly and answer it carefully, because um, any kind of a blithe answer wouldn't be good. Let me think a minute. You know what I think is the most important thing? I was thinking through the, the uh, Eightfold Path for what's the right, what's the most helpful thing. And the first two elements of the path, wise understanding and wise aspiration, is I think what you've said, Melinda, is I get it. If peace is possible, really, in this life, in this body, in this world, troubled as it is, um, it's a possibility, and you know it personally. You know what? I think after, um, after anybody has had the experience, Amanda, Melinda, now at this point, even of a few minutes of peace of mind, you're a different person afterwards. Even the peace of mind goes away and it gets stirred up because you know that it's a possibility. You don't have to become a different person or have a different life. And I think that wise aspiration, the second part of that, is the intention to actually notice when clarity is there and when it's not there to think about what could I do to make it there, you know? The, the people that I know who, uh, uh, who carry on with quite uh, uh, intense job situations and uh, busy workplaces figure out what, situ- what, what amount of... Uh, of practice time they need to sustain them through that. They figure out breaks in the day. They figure out how to take five minutes at lunchtime to sit quietly at their desk, pretending to take a nap, but actually re, you know, resetting their internal thermostat. They, uh, they figure out ways to try to balance the startle of being in, I, I noticed your use of the word cutthroat. You know, it must be a very difficult place, your, your work situation. Um, it'll be a different answer for everybody. I've gone to uh, airports following retreats. You know, the, a van will drive you to the airport, and I look around. It looks so speeded up to me. And, it is, you know, we really... 
I gave up listening to the cable news a couple of months ago. I realized it wasn't good for my mind. Um, was too stirring up. Um, I think everybody figures out for themselves. I don't think there's a formula. I think that wise aspiration is the intention based on the faith that peace is possible to figure out a way to do it. That's what I think. I think that's the best I know. You know, it's a, it's a worry that people have when they leave here after retreat. Were you here for 60 days? Were you just here for 60 days? But people left yesterday after being here for 60 days, and people often worry. They say, you know, I feel like I've taken off my skin, and I'm going out in the world too vulnerable. And I, I, I often say, but I, I want to really be careful not to say this again in a way that's too blithe, but I want to say I don't think there's such a thing as too vulnerable. I'm waiting for the world to become too vulnerable. I want the whole world to stop at the same time and look around and see that we are definitely making a mess out of this planet and all the resources on it and out of all the lives of the people on it and that everybody suddenly has to stop and say, let's not do this anymore. Let's do it another way. Um, There was a moment in, uh, I think it's the second of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Did you see that movie? Where, for reasons that are eluding me at this point, but I don't think there wasn't too much reasons, at some point uh, the king says, two arms, we're going to fight, go to the armory. And there's a, uh, to get your weapons. And there's a very intense scene where throngs of men are running through the armory and picking up swords and lances and spears. And they run in in a great clanging, it's very noisy. And they're picking up a spear and running with it, or a lance and running with it. And I, I had such a sense watching it that somebody could stop any minute. And you know the line that's in my mind is, and they will turn their swords into plowshares. Someone should stop any minute and say, wait a minute, this sword would make a very good plowshare. Let's not do this. Let's not run out and kill ourselves and other people. Let's do something else with it. And I'm, I, you know, I, as people say to me, you really believe that that's going to happen? The world's in such a desperate shape. You think that people are going to get it in time? I don't know. I don't know. I I need to for my own uh, uh, for my own sustenance to believe that it's a possibility that enough people will catch on to the fact that we can't do what we're doing. And even if it doesn't all end well, if it doesn't all end well, in the end there are going to be people who are the consolers, and I want to be among them. It'll be a better place to be. I hope it ends well. I hope it ends well. I think about my grand, my youngest grandchild is 11. She'll be uh, 100 years old at the turn of the century. People live to be 100. I want it to be a good planet when she gets there and when everybody else gets there, too. What else happened to you when you... Yeah. Uh, I have a concern about... Uh, 
the view of Buddhist meditation uh, that is uh, <coughs> that is shared by many people who don't meditate, and this has to do with the terrible tsunamis and witnessing over a, a television screen terrible things happening. And for me, there is a real lack, and that is, the lack is to be able to feel compassion, to feel the, um, the misery, the, the, the absolute overwhelming disaster. We can't do that with our minds, and yet, if I talk to somebody about meditation and the calming of the mind, often they say, how can you do that? Don't you care? Yeah, yeah, I, I actually know that. Um, what's your name? Gladys. Mm -hmm. As in Gladys? Yeah. What's my mother's name? I never met a no, Gladys. Very few Gladyses in the world. Very few Gladyses. No more Gladyses now. And my mother, if she were alive, would be a uh, hundred this year. So, and they called her Gladdy. So, um, you know, the, I, I think I think actually the opposite is true of people who pay attention. I think that rather than become complacent and say that it's just where they were and it's just what's happening and you can't do anything about it and it's all fine. I think that what happens in people whose minds are balanced enough is that tremendous compassion comes out. I just finished reading a book this week that somebody lent to me that I found very compelling. It's written by Claude Thomas and it's called At Hell's Gate. Claude Thomas is a man... Uh, who was younger than I am, he, he served in Vietnam. He tells, in brief, and this, I'm telling you this story because it addresses Gladys's story, Gladys's question. He uh, grew up in a terrible, really terrible environment of very, very wrathful parents. So he was physically abused in his childhood. He was a very good athlete and could have gone to college, but his, parents, his father said, no, no, go in the Marines, they'll make a man out of you. And he went in the Marines, and it's a, a presentation of the brutality in Marine basic training. So that at the end of his basic training, he said that he volunteered to go to Vietnam to be, see active duty. He said, because I had so much pent-up rage at this point, I was eager to kill whatever they told me to kill. And he said, I killed a lot of people. And I didn't feel bad about it because I didn't think they didn't look to me like people. And when he came home from there, when he was discharged because he was wounded, uh, his life really didn't work. Uh, he married and divorced and was very much addicted by drugs and alcohol and couldn't hold a job and was wrathful. And at some point, he met a, uh, a social worker, I guess applying for aid because he couldn't work, who cared enough about him to actually get him to come and stay regularly with his meetings with her. When he didn't come, she called him up and said, come. It's really the first sustaining kindness in his life. And he said, as a result of that encounter, he gave up alcohol and drugs and meat 
and uh, abusive language and uh, uh, promiscuous sex and began to feel more and more clear in his mind and then began to be agonized by the memory of what he had done. And then he met Thich Nhat Hanh, who gave retreats specifically for uh, returning Vietnam veterans. Do you remember that? And Thich Nhat Hanh is Vietnamese. And in that uh, atmosphere, and he said, I can't pay for it, I don't have the money. So they gave it to him as a gift. You can come to Plum Village. Here's your, here's your ticket to go, to go to France, stay in Plum Village. He said, I was so tense, I could not sleep in a, in a bedroom or in a cabin with anybody else. I built a, um, a, a, a campsite for myself, and I armed the perimeter with robes, ropes so it was booby-trapped, and people would trip if they came to get me in the night. And he said, after a period of time, I realized that I was safe there. I couldn't believe that the very people that I had not seen as people were the first people who were kind to me. It was heartbreaking to me. He said, I went to, con- to confess to uh, Sister Fong that I had uh, booby-trapped my area, and I wanted to tell her that I had taken down those booby-traps. And she said, well, I'm glad that you did, but if you feel any need to put them up again, feel free to put them up. He stayed, he took vows as a monk in that order. Subsequently, he left there and joined Bernie Glassman's uh, Order of Peacemakers, and he has stayed a celibate, itinerant monk. What he does is he goes from place to place and teaches about the transformation of the mind from wherever it is to a mind of peace. And the important reason that I wanted to tell you this at this moment is he said, what was crucial to me was the practice of mindfulness that I learned from Thich Nhat Hanh and from that community because I could not transform my mind just by deciding to leap over the whole story of what had happened to me and that I needed as part of my healing to be able to sit and face all of the recollections and all of the memories I had, both of what I had done in fighting and what had been done to me as a child. It's a monumental amount of pain that he had to face. But I'm, I'm saying that particularly because some people have signed up today specifically because they need to talk about how this kind of practice facilitates healing. Facilitates healing not just in people who are trauma survivors of that kind, but all of us have sustained all kinds of things in our life that are difficult to bring to mind. One of the things that I most believe is that calm in the mind does not suppress everything that's there. I think calm in the mind allows whatever is there to come up. That was tremendously surprising to me to find out in my own course of being a meditation student. I was a psychotherapist 10 years before I even heard of, of Buddhist meditation. And I, I, I think I was okay at what I did. And I had been in therapy myself, birth part of my training. And before I started my, 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 uh, my training as a psychotherapist, it actually is what caused me to become a psychotherapist, is I felt better from being in therapy. And I thought, well, I want to do that too. 
And I think I was all right about it. I think I was good enough about it. And when I started to sit in, a, in, a, in an organized and consistent way, many of the themes of my life that I thought I had finished talking about in therapy were back all over again. Like the villain in an operetta that gets shot or killed in the last scene and then comes out to take a bow and sings again after the curtain is down. I thought to myself, this is like a, you know, a, a cowboy operetta and the villains are back singing again. Uh, but they sang for a certain amount of time and then they sang less and sometimes they disappeared altogether. And I thought to myself, there's no end of healing that has to happen for us to really put ourselves together. Who knows what healing is left in me? You know, we, we all, none of us fly exactly straight. We, slot, we, we fly with all the baggage that we've carried from all of our lives. And I think that this is an opportunity not to calm the mind into non-response, but to calm the mind enough so that it can respond. That's a long answer, but I feel quite passionate about the fact that mindfulness and all of Buddhist contemplative practice as I know it is on behalf of all beings, on behalf of a peaceful world to the degree that I am not preoccupied with my own turmoil. Am I available to see the, the suffering of others and I have the heart to respond to it? Thank you very much for the question, Gladys. It's a very important question. Who else wanted to say something about the five kinds of meditations we did, or about the lunch, or about what's happening to them. Yeah. Um, when you said the five types of meditation, I realized that I've done exactly what often happens with, with meditation, where somebody's guiding <laughs> I hear the first, maybe the second. <laughs> Who here, including me, has the same thing? <laughs> I'll tell you again, I lose it after the first paragraph if it's somebody else talking. I myself have to think hard while I'm giving the instructions to remember where I'm up to. I'll tell them to you. But I want to tell you first a piece of information before that we're doing, we're doing practice and theory of Buddhist philosophy and psychology today, all in one day. I love it. So this is what the Buddha said. There are five afflictive energies that overtake the mind. We've already heard a few of them. One is uh, fretting and anxiety. That's one. Another is sleepiness and torpor. Sleepiness, torpor, uh, lack of energy in the mind. You know, I think they're both two sides of the same, uh, the same parameter in the mind. It's, uh, because I, I think if we take away... Sleepiness, torpor, you know, sounds like really one of a terrible thing. Torpor. If you say, you know, my mind doesn't have any energy in it today, that's okay. Torpor sounds like something that you did purposely, like a moral flaw. You know, it's, it's just a sleepy mind. And actually, the, the fretful mind is a mind that's got a great deal of energy in it. It's looking around what to worry about. As, you said, as Amanda said, I worry, 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 worry. The people who fret will know the syndrome is you worry, 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 you worry about something. Worrying about someone who's having such a procedure today. Worry, 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 worry. And they call and they say, the procedure is over, I'm okay, it's fine, it's negative. You say, phew, 
I say, wow, I really lost the whole morning in fretting. That was useless. Now, I'm never going to fret again. I learned the lesson. I'm never going to fret again. A few minutes go by, and then the mind starts scanning the horizon. Well, what could I possibly fret about now? As I think about it, it's the mind that's full of energy and is looking for something to fasten onto in terms of a possible fret. People are very good at fretting. They can make a fret out of absolutely nothing. You know that. You phone somebody and they're not home, and you thought they would be. And then you think, what could have happened to them? 50 million exciting, wonderful things could have happened to them. And they could have, they could have befallen, some misery could have befallen them. But you probably would have heard about it if a misery would have befallen them. You know. And anyway, you can't do anything about it. But then you get the idea, aha, they should be there. Call, 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 call. I left three messages. Where were you? You know. So that's the mind that's looking. It has too much energy. The mind that doesn't have enough energy takes naps, falls asleep. Uh, what else did we have? The mind that uh, we didn't so much talk about. Um, we had worry, worry, falling asleep, uh, doubt. The, the the fifth of the of the uh, of the energies because there's two left in here. The fifth of the energies is doubt. And it's, a, it's an interesting energy to talk about because it doesn't feel energetic. It, it's, doubt is really a series of thoughts that confuse the mind, but they're usually thoughts about one's own possibilities, like, I'm never going to be able to do this, this is the wrong practice, this is the wrong teacher, it's the wrong day, it's the wrong something, I should have taken up Qigong, yoga would be better. Uh, <laughs> maybe, who knows, I heard about a workshop in Berkeley, that would be really good, this, that, um, this is not working for me, it's not going to do me a bit of good. Meantime, the mind getting all ruffled up by all of that stuff. But no, it's hard to think, wait, wait a minute, I'm having a doubt attack now. We don't think that, we believe the doubts. And then we get all afraid by them. If someone said, listen, you believe in those doubts, when, we, when I said, sustain your attention, over the next number of breaths. If you did it, you probably thought, hey, I can do this. There's a moment when the mind is sustaining that the the doubts go away because the sustaining pushes the doubts out. There's no room for the doubts. It's all full of sustaining vigilance. Evenly hovering attention. I learned that just three days ago from someone who told me that Sigmund Freud said that how you sit with somebody when you're listening to them is with evil, evenly hovering attention. I thought that was interesting to think about that. It sounds very nice. So evenly hovering attention that's sustained is an antidote to doubt. Uh, calm is the antidote to... Uh, fretting and anxiety. Remember when we did um, the exercise where I said try to see the beginnings and the ends and the beginnings and the ends. Did you do that? Could you do it? What happened to you while you did it? Anything happen? I should have said more. Notice what happens. What happened? You became more alert. That's what is supposed to happen when you do that. If you pick out something 
that's discreet because it's it's perfectly easy, especially a nice day like this. The weather is perfect. The temperature is perfect. You just ate lunch. The mind starts to feel... And you could sit in a nice, pleasant, kind of go-where-nowhere haze. It's not bad. A little hypnagogic, little images. But then if you have the instruction, find this tiny moment, that tiny moment, this tiny moment, that tiny moment, it wakes up the mind. And it's actually called um, uh, aiming the mind. Aiming the mind at, uh, at a specific small point in order to wake it up. Hmm? I found it uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. Maybe, Gladys, it's uncomfortable to sustain after a certain amount of time because you have to keep trying. And Was that that? Was that that? But sometimes it wakes people up. Sometimes it wakes people up. You know how if you, uh, uh, if you get up in the... Well, I don't know if this is a, a calming or not a calming idea. But you know if, you, if you're somewhere camping out or you get up in the night and you think you heard a sound... All of a sudden, you're listening with tremendous acuity, right? Really listening. You're really listening. Ah, da, da. Then the whole mind wakes up. You're not sleepy in a moment. All the sleepiness is gone because you're really, really paying attention. That keenness of attention wakes up the mind, takes away the torpor. So we have two things, two hindrance energies left that we haven't so much talked about because... No one actually brought them up very much. Um, I'll tell them to you, so, because no one brought them up. What if... Um, huh, this is a better way to teach it. This is a, because this is a, it's, a, it's a fun story to tell, and we'll be able to work with it a little bit. Once upon a time, some years ago now, um, someone who was a regular uh, participant in the Wednesday morning class came to class on a Wednesday, and we sit and I, I teach, and then there's some time for uh, a little bit of sharing. People share, and people know each other in the community because they've been coming for years. And somebody said, I just have to tell the group, I had such a terrible day yesterday, can't believe it. I... Um, came out of my apartment building in San Francisco and I went to get in my car and the car looked lower than usual and when I got there, lo and behold, in the night someone had stolen all the tires off it and it's sitting on the hubcaps. And she said, so, I became so upset and I live a few blocks from Stonestown Shopping Center. So I walked over to Stonestown and I bought the silk pajamas in the window of Nordstrom's <laughs> that I've been coveting for a long time. And then I went home, and I called my job, and I, you know, I told them I have to stay home and call the police and take care of the tires. But someone else said at that point, you did that? I wouldn't do that. I would have gone back in the building and found the superintendent in the building and given her a piece of my mind. After all, I'd pay a high rent for her to make sure that the area is policed and that it's safe there and... You know, that shouldn't be happening. And then if I went to work, I would have given everybody there a hard time because after all, you know, if I'm, if I'm upset, I have a right. Everybody should know I'm upset. <laughs> and somebody else said, you know, 
I wouldn't have done that. Said I would have. That would have just so blown me away. I would have gone back in my apartment and said, called my work and said, you know, I can't come to work today. I've had it. I've already had too much problems today. My <laughs> tires are gone. I have to call the cops. I have to make a report. I have to get the car towed. I have to buy tires. I'll come tomorrow. And somebody else said, well, you know me, I would have thought to myself, today the tires, tomorrow the car. (laughs) Because, you know, I'm a worrying type. And then another person said, you know, and I think by the fifth they might have been just cueing themselves because these are all people who know what the five afflictive energies are. Fifth person said, you know me, I would have said to myself, you know, it's my fault. I stupidly messed up. I should have known not to rent an apartment in this particular district, (laughs) that this could have happened. It's all my fault. It's always my fault. I never choose well. It's my fault. So you have the energies of lust and aversion and torpor and uh, anxious uh, fretting and doubt in those five people. So, first of all, I want to ask you, by the way, the, not uh, silk, silk pajamas as a focus of lust is a particular focus of lust. person could have said, I went, uh, I went across the street to Starbucks and I got a latte, and uh, while I was there, I figured, hey, I'm having a glazed donut because this is a hard morning. <laughs> or they could have said, I just decided I'm taking the day off, I'm calling a friend and I'm going to the movies, or... They, one or another, I will soothe my body with a sensual pleasure. Okay, and so lust is I will soothe my body with a sensual pleasure. The second one is I will discharge the stress by being angry. You don't decide, by the way. We don't say, mm, "What will I do?" We all have different types. If it were me, I would da 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 da. So some people they get mad. Some people they get. What can I do to soothe myself? Some people say, who can I be mad at? Some people say, oh, this did me in. Other people say, oh, dear, this is such a cause for anxiety. And some people say, "Uh aha, it's my fault. I knew it. So let's take a little poll here. (laughs) Substituting, you know, glazed donuts or uh, glazed donuts and pajamas is not so bad. I'll have a drink. It's a little worse. You know, other ways of sensually... Soothing the system. How many people would, in category A, some permutation of glazed donuts? Okay. How many people get mad? How many people think, this is it, I had it, I can't, I need the day off? Okay. How many people think, uh oh, this is, you know, this is a really, I'm really worried now about that. How many people would worry? How many people would think it's my fault? How many people put their hand up twice? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I told this story somewhere, and um, a friend of mine who recently died, uh, was in the back of the room, and I did that, just I told that same story. And at the end, I see he's really scratching his head and looking perplexed. And he said, I don't know, Sylvia, 
I don't get these people. This is in front of the whole group. He said, I don't get these people. I would have gone back in the apartment. I would have called the cops. I would have made a report. I would have called the police. I would have called the tow truck. I would have called the, the AAA about where I should get tires and how I should charge them. I would have gone to work. What's the matter with these people? So the thing is that we would have all done that, really. So this is only an exercise in what would we have felt like doing. And everybody's got a principal hindrance. I would have said for years that my principal hindrance energy, hindrance in the sense that it precludes clear seeing, that my principal hindrance energy was uh, fretting. I'm not sure anymore. I think it was. Uh, I think it might be lust at this point. I'm not an angry type. I, you know, I, I come from very mild-mannered people. I get, I get annoyed. Uh, and sometimes I get really angry, but not so much. And I, I don't, people don't know about it when I do. I have enough warning to stay home, uh, stay away from people. And, um, I have friends who regret sending that vituperative email, or my friend with whom I didn't speak for years because he dashed off that letter that he then felt embarrassed about. So that's not one of the things I do, but it's just I do other things. I don't have torpor so much because I just have a, I think, I think fretful people, they have a lot of energy, but uh, I have a lot of energy. Um, who thinks they have one, everybody's got one more than the other. Who has the most of lust? Who has the most of anger? Whose energy most is torpor? Most is anxiety. Most is self-doubt. It's interesting to see. Who knows? They shift around all the time. The thing is, the big change in me, which I think is wonderful news for everybody in every category, is at some point it became clear to me that I don't have to say to myself or to anybody else, I'm an anxious, fretful person. I said, why should I label myself that? And then I'm stuck being that. Why not say I am a person in whom, for whatever reason, the habit of fretting arises easily when I'm stressed? That, that way, first of all, it depathologizes it. It's not an illness that I have. It's also, it's only a habit. It is only a habit, you know? I, I actually didn't learn this habit from my parents. They were neither of them like that. So I think it's a genetic habit, but I think also it's changeable. And when I began to think of it as a habit and began to be determined to change it, it began to change because instead of responding to it, if I were in an airport and they said, uh, uh, ladies and gentlemen, can I have your attention? And then mine says, ah, oh, something wrong is happening. The plane I'm waiting for, the plane I'm going on, a, a, a bomb squad alert, who knows what. My mind does that immediately. And then I say to myself, it's nothing. It's your mind, sweetheart. It's just doing its thing. Relax. And you do that enough, it stops doing it. It's like you unscrew the cables a little bit. Do you remember the last scene of 2001? You remember the last scene of 2001 where they, they are dissembling the computer, dissembling how, so it can't direct the, 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 the flight anymore, 
I feel bad for Hal, you know. Hal's a computer. But Hal at that point starts to talk in, I really wish you wouldn't do that. But you see that Hal is getting demobilized. And I actually think that uh, it's my experience. I believe, I have faith. I sound like a somewhat evangelical about that. But it is my experience that we can unscrew certain habits of the mind slowly, not just once. You have to keep doing it. And then they get less. But I have to first identify them as this is my habit. Not even my habit. This is a habit that arises in me from time to time. Now, those correlation of those habits to those five different uh, practices that a lot of people didn't hear after the first one. <laughs> in the first one, I said, why don't you try to be one-pointed with your attention, right? Just doing this. One-pointed focus is said to be the antidote to, surprisingly, lust. You know why? Because in, in, just as in fretting, the mind is looking around, what can I worry about, what can I worry about, what can I worry about? With lust, the mind is looking around, what's good, what's good, what can I get, what can I get, what can I get? And if you give it one-pointed focus, the, the lusts fall away, they just go away. They don't see anything else that you want more. It's just this. The next thing we did after that is I said to feel your body. Could you feel your body? Was it buzzy a little bit? What happened when you smiled? Relaxed. You feel it in your body. What else did you feel? Yeah. It brightens. Yeah, it brightens. All of those body feelings go under the general category in meditation, anyway, speech, of rapture. We usually think of rapture as falling over rapture, but it isn't falling over rapture. Rapture is a generic term for a heightened awareness of body sensations. Just the body buzzes. It's alive. It's very consoling to see. It's, it's, it's engaging. It's energizing to know this body is alive, going all the time. Like a motor when it's idling. Well, not with new cars. You hardly know that they're idling. But in the days when your new cars were idling, that's what they did. They made a little sound. And you know that the motor is turned on. Rapture is the antidote to anger. Without being bliss. That when the body is content and happy and the mind is filled with um, lovely feeling or pleasant feeling, you can't be angry at the same time. It doesn't, doesn't work in the same mind. That's why people who are hungry are more apt to be irritable or tell you what they think. People who are on a, whose stomachs are full are more open to discussion. People who live with people for a long time know that they should eat first before having a discussion. <laughs> people are full of food and reasonably relaxed. Then they can hear what's going on. So mind's a little bit pleased with what's been going on. Rapture is the antidote to irritability and negativity. 
uh, keen uh, perception, looking very, very closely, is the antidote to torpor. Long, calm breaths in and out is the antidote to fretting, anxiety. And continuity of attention is the antidote to doubt because if the mind is filled, it's called sustaining. If the mind sustains itself with one object, it pushes everything else out and it brings a certain amount of self-confidence to the mind. I can do this. It also pushes out all the thoughts that have to do that, that don't build self-confidence. You ever think of all the things that you say to yourself in the course of a day? I think if we had a friend that followed us around and said as many times as we say to ourselves in the course of a day, that was a stupid thing to do. You shouldn't have done that. You could have done that better. Anybody says that to themselves ever? I should have come earlier, later, done this, done that. I should have planned. I should have this. I should have that. Suppose we had a friend and they followed you around right behind you all day long, gave you a running commentary. That wasn't so good. You didn't do that great. You would never keep a friend like that. And yet we keep our own minds that do a running commentary. Not so good. Not so good. That editorial opinion we don't actually need at all, which is what will be the bridge to what I want to really, what I want to help you to practice for the rest of the afternoon. One specific form of mindfulness, we talked a little bit this morning, of the third foundation of mindfulness. Do you remember what it was? This is a quiz. What's the third foundation of mindfulness? That was two. Huh? Contents of the mind. What's the emotional mind full of thoughts, empty of thoughts, full of uh, energy, empty of energy, full of lust, uh, empty of lust? Mind full of thoughts. The kind of thoughts that your mind makes. Some of the thoughts that I want to pay attention to are the thoughts that I... First of all, the disparaging thoughts. He didn't do that well. I, you know... I feel the, the um, when I hear my, my, my mind say to me, you really screwed that up, you didn't do that well. Maybe I did, maybe I didn't. Sometimes I'm better than other times at whatever it is that I'm doing. I'd like to be able to say, that was the best, I, right away, that was the best I could do. And I'm continuing now. Not to carry on with that, oh, I did, I didn't, maybe I did, maybe I didn't. Um... That voice has gotten better in me over the years. So I'd like to hear that voice. I'd like to hear the voice um, that's giving me instructions that are imperative. Uh, uh, you should call Jim. I should call Jim. I should, but not now, sometime in the near future so that I don't respond to all the voices telling me do this, do that. I want to spend enough time paying attention to the, the thoughts in my mind to know whose voice is mine and whose voice is not mine. Someone told me a story. Can you sit another five minutes, ten? Someone told me a story um, not long ago at a retreat. She said she was, she was at a retreat here at Spirit Rock. She's a 
a, a, a fairly, um, I don't know what you say, long-time practitioner, because sometimes people make a lot of progress right away. But she's been practicing for a while and making progress, whatever that is, insight. And she reported to me in her interview, she said, I was walking up to the building to come in here. She said, and as I walked up to the building, I uh, saw myself walking up. You can see yourself in the glass doors. Did you notice that? You can see yourself coming. She said, I saw myself in the glass doors. And uh, I said, a voice in my mind said to me, my voice said, I do not have bowed legs. (laughs) Out of the blue. And she said, and I was really struck by it because suddenly I realized that it, 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 I wasn't thinking about that. I walked up, I looked at my legs, I looked at me, and a voice said, I do not have bowed legs. And she said, you know, when I was a child, my mother said I had bowed legs. She told me that all the time. And she told me that my eyes were too close together and that my forehead was too narrow and that I didn't have good posture. And she said a lot of not good things about me. She said, and you know, it's an amazing thing. I grew up, I, I, I got a profession, I married, I have children, I had a life. She said, but all my life, I actually operated with the feeling that I wasn't a very good-looking woman. And I looked at myself in those doors, and I thought, I'm really all right. <laughs> I'm a nice-looking middle-aged woman. I'm fine. And she said, this is a revelation to me because... I, I didn't think so before now, and I didn't actually connect it with anything that anybody said. I just didn't think I was a very special-looking woman. But I realize now my mother said that all the time. And she said, you know, I went back, when I first realized it, I went and I sat down in the meditation hall, and I sat and sat, and I had zillions of memories of my mother saying, the critical remarks, my forehead this, my eyes to this, my legs too bowed. She said, I thought one after another, after another, after another. She said, it was really overwhelming. I hadn't actually realized that it was such a big part of my life. And she said, I cried a lot about it. And then she said, you know what? By the time it was evening yesterday, this is a day later she's telling me, I began to think, I really feel badly that my mother didn't recognize that I'm a nice-looking person. She probably didn't think she was a nice-looking person. So she missed enjoying me. She probably missed enjoying herself. So I really can't be mad at her. I feel badly for her. I think that what happened for her was that she was able, in that particular moment of clarity, to hear a voice that was an imprint in her mind, an imprint that had been saying something to her for 55 years that she hadn't heard before then, that she had felt the effects of, but not heard. I always think when I tell that story, it always stops me, because I think I wonder what imprints I have in me that I haven't heard yet, that might not be doing me so much good. So paying attention to the stories that I tell myself, the stories that other people told me, the editorial opinions that I keep making, 
paying attention to the contents of mind, noticing when there are afflictive energies and trying to calm them down. You know, actually, when I presented those five meditations, calming this way, this way, this way, this way, this way, actually, you don't really have to do them very much. It's actually just noticing my mind is afflicted. Take a breath and let it out. Take a breath and let it out. Take a breath and let it out. I don't really have to think what kind of breath. Should I smile? Should I not smile? Should I be looking at in and out? Should I be looking at this? Should I be looking at that? You take 10 breaths. It makes a difference. It doesn't matter how you take them. And I wanted to do this because what I want to do in the next minutes, because I know that you're sitting nearly an hour and a half, is I want to talk about uh, loving-kindness meditation as uh, a, a particular response to an awareness of the third foundation, awareness of what's happening in thoughts and feelings in the mind. Because sometimes in the history of loving-kindness practice, certainly in the West, in, um, and how it's come down in the 30 or 35 years that people have been teaching... Westerners have been teaching uh, vipassana, mindfulness and metta meditation, loving-kindness meditation in the West. We've taught them a lot as separate meditations, like you could go on a mindfulness retreat or you could go on a metta retreat. So I tell my friends that on my tombstone, I wanted to say, Sylvia said, they are just the same. They really, really are. They have a different form, but they're just the same that every moment of mindfulness is a compassionate act for yourself. That every moment of meeting the moment fully and as a friend is not complicating your life. May I not, we could be saying, instead of saying, may I meet this moment fully, may I meet it as a friend, we could be saying, may I not complicate my life. May I not complicate my life. May I not complicate my life. It would be the same thing. May I not agonize myself by add-ons is what Sharon calls them. May I not agonize myself with habits of my mind. Just what's happening now, what's happening now. I think every moment of mindfulness is a compassionate act. Every moment of cultivating blessings in the mind for oneself or for other people is a compassionate act. Just like sustaining the mind on any other thing it pushes out everything that isn't a blessing. You cannot have the mind in blessing mode and at the same time be agitated. You can't have the mind in blessing mode and be nervous. You can't be angry while you're in blessing mode. Blessings come either pursuant to or causing the feeling of my cup runneth over. When you really feel good, your cup runneth over with whatever then you really feel good on people just naturally. If you begin to bless, then you begin to feel like you don't need anything. You are filled with the blessings. My friend um, Guy Armstrong, with whom I teach here quite often, says about this blessing practice that if you, that, that metta practice, metta is a Pali word for friend, by the way. It's translated as loving kindness, but here I am again telling you it's a mistranslation. It actually is much closer to the root word in Pali and in Sanskrit that means friend. It's friendliness meditation. It's being friendly to yourself to wish yourself well. It says the metta mind, the mind that's full of friendliness, is like frozen orange juice, Guy likes to say. 
says everything that's extra has been squeezed out of it and only the sweetness remains. So I like that. We need to have a walking meditation because people have been here sitting for a long time. I'd like for you to do this walking meditation as the beginning practice of uh, loving-kindness meditation because we have a short time together left. I want you to have enough experience with this to at least be able to have a sense of how it works. So I'm going to tell you this because I know you need to stand up soon. Loving-kindness practice is really the practice of conditioning a cordial mind moment to moment, not fighting with your experience. I think about when people say, how much loving-kindness practice do you do every day? I hope, I, I wish I could say I do it from the minute I get up until I go to sleep. Why would I want to complicate any moment or fight with it or make it worse? I try to have a cordial and open feeling moment to moment. Usually what they mean when they say, how much loving-kindness practice do you do every day? They mean, how many, how many blessings do you say every day? How much time do you spend blessing? Sometime every day in a formal way. The formal practice, and as it's taught on retreat, and as we'll practice it now, is the recitation silently in one's mind of blessings for oneself and for other people. How many people have never done it? The formal blessings. This morning I said, who has never done? A lot of people never did. A lot of people are sleeping. <laughs> it's a too hard of a question. Here are the blessings I'd like you to say. You say them with me. May I feel safe. May I feel, May I feel content. May I feel, May I feel strong. May I feel may I live with ease. May I feel safe. May I feel content. May I feel strong. May I live with ease. Now you do it without me. Ready go. Again. We'll do it one more time, and this time, it's a little harder to do this while walking than when sitting, but I want you, I want you to have this experience. L say each of them, and then wait five seconds and see if you can feel it in your body or in your mind. Ready, go. Great. I want to ask you, can you feel the, the, those sentiments echo in your body? They do. Each one of them is a little different from each other one. You can feel it more if you're sitting than if you're walking, because your body's still. But I would like to suggest, I'd like to invite you to take the next 30 minutes. I'll ring the bell, sit here for one minute, or half a minute, or however long, and say the phrases to yourself. Blessings. Let's think of them as blessings. They're blessings. Say them to yourself. 
whenever you have them starting to go, like a tape loop, stand up and go out, walk around. You don't have to walk back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, although it makes it easier if you do that, because then you don't have to think, where am I going next? Walk either back and forth, back and forth, or up the hill and down the hill. Take time to go into the restroom if you need to. And all of the time, keep those four blessings going in your mind as a continuous, continuous, continuous refrain. Can you do that? When you find, "Uh uh-oh, I forgot it, I'm not doing it, start again. When you think, "Uh uh-oh, I can't remember the third one, forget about it, do three. Doesn't matter. Carrying on. We'll ring a bell 25 minutes from now, and we'll be back a half hour from now. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.